carry confidence with you. L3 Harris provides ultra-reliable portables and mobiles that are designed by and for those on the front lines. Learn more at www.l3harris.com. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, every state and every agency each have a variety of methods and trainings in how to deal with active shooter and mass shooting incidents. There is no national model, and sometimes we get a less than optimal response that invites criticism. It doesn't help that the public already presents a dichotomy of expectations from law enforcement, either Russian ready, fire, aim, or de-escalate, negotiate, or as some agencies are adopting at barricaded suspects, fold up operations and leave altogether. Well, a new toolkit supported by a grant from the National Institute of Justice advances efforts to prevent and reduce intentional, interpersonal, and public mass attacks in the United States. The RAND Corporation researchers created the toolkit to provide practical strategies and guidance on deterring mitigating and responding to mass attacks for a variety of audiences, including public safety experts, practitioners, policymakers, community groups, and the public. The researchers have studied 600 mass attack events and plots, interviewed dozens of experts, and reviewed hundreds of references. The team then identified the mass attacks defense change, a series of defenses that work together to reduce the probability of mass attacks and their impacts. The toolkit describes the most important tips researchers found to help reduce the likelihood and causalities of mass attacks. The toolkit also provides key guidance and resources to provide more detailed information. And I've seen it. It looks great. And I have with me Dr. John S. Hollywood. He's the Senior Operations Researcher, Policing and Homeland Security Studies for the RAND Corporation. Welcome, Dr. John Hollywood. Great. Thank you. Great to be here today. Yeah, uh, you know, we talked a little bit before the podcast, and and I use uh, articles and research from RAND all the time in my classes. Um, Great, great stuff that you're doing there. Tell us about this toolkit. Um, Boy, we sure need it now especially with such high-profile incidents that uh, it's brought to everyone's attention. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, I think a few things about the, 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 the toolkit. Um, in coming up with the toolkit, what we really wanted to do with it was, as much as possible, basically make it, the extent we could, kind of a toolkit for everyone. Uh, you know, what are the top things that we can just we can provide for people ranging from the general public to practitioners of all types to those responsible for safety at specific sites to um, policymakers and executives who basically control purse strings? What they you know what they could do that would be of most value uh, in order towards pre- prevention, ideally, and then in the worst case, mitigating the attacks and helping communities recover afterwards. So. As, so the way we try to set it up is to first provide the top tips kind of for everybody, then kind of the top tips for specific uh, audiences, provide more detail for those who's needing it. And then for those who need even more information and resources, we provide a whole lot of outbound links uh, to people. So, for example, um, we come up with things ranging from specific guidebooks and fillable spreadsheets 
for those who are responsible for conducting threat assessment of people who are at high risk, and then also the paperwork needed for, to track all that and also what they should be doing next and when to come back for the next assessment. Uh, we also provide links to detailed update medical guidance uh, on those needing to treat victims of mass shootings, for example, and a lot of other things all in between, uh, references to help with recovery as well. Yeah, to get are... there, oh, go ahead. No, no, go, please. Yeah. Uh, and then to get the toolkit, as you mentioned, we were able to find and code over 600 cases. And I think importantly, a lot of the work to date has all been on cases that were, you know, were completed, cases where there are a lot of people that were killed. So we wanted to learn not just from kind of the, the worst cases, but also from the comparatively good cases, the, the many, many cases in which uh, plots were stopped and foiled in advance. Uh, also learned from cases in which People try to show up and seem to carry a shooting, but we're stopped very, very quickly and without ideally nobody being killed. So how, so how do we learn from that? Also talked with many uh, dozens of subject matter experts from many disciplines, law enforcement, but also fire, EMS, emergency planning, school safety, state governance, uh, county governance. Uh, we also reviewed hundreds of research articles and guidance on how to prevent, respond, and help recover from mass attacks, many of which we were able to link through through our toolkit. Uh, then we're able to have over a dozen experts review the toolkit in its early form, gave us a lot of great advice on that, and then followed by you know, professional publication. So I really want to thank everyone who was involved, if you don't mind for a second. I mean, there was, was very much a team effort. There were close to two dozen people who were working on this toolkit altogether, uh, including from RAND, RTI International, Lafayette Group, and Karchmer Associates. Uh, so I definitely want to thank NIJ for giving us a, a grant, you know, a large grant to, to study on this. And I'd say overall, if I were to summarize the toolkit in like 30 seconds, there are three overall top takeaways on the toolkit. Um, the first is what we call proactive prevention. And that is that basically almost two thirds of the plots in our data, and those are just the ones that were publicly reported, were foiled because a member of the public reported key suspicious information. And what did the most part they report? I mean, nothing really odd or, or, or very kind of out there. Mostly it was people who were threatening to carry out attacks or conducting activities like amassing arsenals, doing research on how to carry out mass attacks, traveling to sites to, to do mass attacks, the things that were directly related to carrying out a mass shooting. Uh, the second point is what we call relentless follow-up. And that is you need to have interagency teams of experts from different roles uh, who are responsible for doing the assessment and following up with people reported as being at high risk uh, with a single point of contact for each case can vary on the case. I mean, there's not like a dedicated leader for each case for like a school, you know, for a student would be more school led workplace might even be a workplace led. But the idea is that there's a single point of contact, basically, um, for each case, and you're working with everybody to make sure that you agree on follow-up actions with them to provide necessary assessments and services, and that balls aren't dropped and you don't leave information in the field. The third thing is diligent training and preparation, which is you need to have advanced planning and training required everyone who's going to be involved, uh, who's going to respond jointly to mass attacks, starting from on-scene security and even bystanders uh, all the way up through people who are going to be responding and doing investigating of the scene afterwards. So that's basically the toolkit in a nutshell. And it does include between 50 to hundred pages, depending on how you print it out. So there's a lot there. Yeah, I've Happy seen it. Questions. It is very detailed and, and I appreciate mm -hmm. it. Uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, costs at, at the early onset of, of your description and, 
I read in the New York Times recently that in 2021, schools and colleges in the United States spent an estimated $3.1 billion, with a B, uh, on security products and services compared with $2.7 million in 2017. So we are ramping up like crazy. And sometimes I wonder if we just, you know, sort of check the boxes and say, okay, we did that. We did that. I mean, yours goes into pretty intensive, um, you know, specifics on what to do planning before um, maybe mitigating and responding and then, um, you know, response afterwards. Uh, Congress just passed uh, gun legislation that included $300 million to bolster school security. And I've worked on school plans. Uh, how was it when, in your meetings? Did you talk about, um, you know, walking that fine line in creating your plan so that, you know, chances are that maybe the, the shooter is sitting in the audience that you're prepping uh, when you talk to audiences of, of school kids and, and telling them what's going to happen during a mass attack, then you're essentially giving the game plan to the shooter. Right. So I think there are a few things. I mean, one is think whenever we do planning for this, it's a serious risk. It, it causes great trauma to the, you know, to the community and the country. Mm-hmm. These are very, very rare. Okay. Um, I did calculations, you know, for terror attacks. I think it's similar for mass shootings. Um, basically, you know, certainly for mass attacks that have attracted, you know, n- national concern, you, you were significantly more likely to be struck by lightning and killed than ever seeing, you know, you will probably go your whole life, especially seeing the news without ever coming, in, coming into, a, into a mass shooting. And I think it's important to understand this. It's also the case that the number of people killed, the number of students killed by fire is even rarer. I remember you know, reading a few years ago a statement that the number of U.S. students that have been killed by fire through a 25 period, 25 year period that this company was talking about that they knew of was zero. That doesn't mean we don't have fire drills. It doesn't mean we don't have fire extinguishers. It doesn't mean we don't have sprinklers, right? I mean, part of the reason why we have no why we have no deaths from fire is because we we do things to prevent the fire, and it's kind of the same way for mass shootings. So we need to come to it kind of from that point. You know, this is a reasonable concern. We want to, we want to, we want to address a reasonable thing, but we do not need to turn our schools into Fort Knox. We do not need to be scaring the daylights and even traumatizing our kids with like highly realistic mass shootings where they're seeing people with full moulage, you know, and simulated gunshot wounds. I think it's, you know, needs to be done in a very calm way. Um, obviously with different things being done for different weight ages. Um, and I, I think ideally my hope is that for, for mass shooters who would be mass shooters who are sitting through these things, it might encourage them ideally to get help. It might encourage them to think that they're not going to accomplish what they wanted. Uh, might encourage other students who say, hey, you know, this other student or this other student's friend is talking about killing people and has shown me a spreadsheet full of information on how to kill people. Um, that's happened. You know, that, that kind of thing has actually happened in advance. Um, and we'll, you know, provide reports to authorities uh, in, in advance, you know, help stop the next attack. One thing that really came up very clearly in talking with our experts, in fact, is that the number of foiled plots that we were able to find, which was over 300 of them, is the tip of the iceberg. That there are, well, there's a much larger portion we refer to as the gray area. And the gray area basically is 
all those cases where a person reported being high risk, there was some evidence behind it. Authorities worked with the person who was at risk, most frequently a student, basically deterred them and diverted them away from violence, got them the resources they needed, and then they went on to not have a mass attack. And because there are many privacy issues involved with that, you will never hear about those. Those will never be reported, and you will never know for sure whether they would have gone on to carry out an attack. I mean, statistically, the answer is probably still then probably not. But it's important that you know, a lot of the successes that we have to date are not being seen. Um, provided that things, you know, that the various processes are in place and working well. Um, in terms of school security itself, I mean, the thing to emphasize is that it, we don't need to have Fort Knox. We don't need to turn schools into Fort Knox. The things that seem to work best in our analysis were things like having door locks, you know, good door locks, making sure they're working, that you're able to basically separate shooters from, from, from their potential targets. Yeah, yeah, things but, like entry vestibules and things like you know, entry vestibules, walk up areas, provide more time and distance to, for people to be able to respond. Sure. Um, but nothing, nothing really major. Yeah, I mean, the, the door locks, are, you know, is a double edged sword. Um, yeah. We saw in Uvalde that, um, you know, there's there's a difference of um, information on whether or not doors were actually locked or right. whether they, the the responders had the correct uh prying tools to to get the doors open so yeah we've got to figure that one out in a hurry um is there a physical component of training that goes along with this toolkit when you say physical do you mean like slides do you mean like classroom training or exercises or like actual you know sort of simulated buildings yeah in um in san francisco where i worked for the pd Mm -hmm. we had um oh probably 15 years ago now uh, the diamond formation training where oh, we actually yeah. had uh, simulated shooters and, and um, you know, victims in classrooms. And uh, we had, we actually exposed officers to, you know, mock oh, threats yeah. Yeah. and then ev- evacuating um, those that were injured or needed help uh, because, you know, fire, and EMT oh, yeah. wouldn't go into these scenes. So right. all those things in consideration with the toolkit, um, you know, there's some great uh, simulate uh, teaks in Texas. Uh, right. Absolutely. And, and for now, at least we, that's who we point to. We point to alert. Oh, great. Okay. The, the, yeah. Texas tech. That's who we point to for both their, uh, their line classes as well as for their training, the trainer classes. Yeah, those are great. They're free and they'll send a whole team from your your agency and jurisdiction. Like you mentioned, uh, fire, EMT, public health, police, uh, anybody who might be involved in these kinds of responses. That's good to know. Um, How can the toolkit be applied to a region? Is there a suggestion on how you can bring together a county or a a group of counties and the multi-agencies? Yeah. So I think there the idea is, again, to have your higher level regional multi-organizational, higher level regional multi-organizational threat assessment teams. That actually can be very useful, especially if a single agency doesn't have the own expertise. Um, with we, we talk about the importance of the regional leadership, you know, whatever that is, whether it's you know the county executive or the mayor or head of the, the metropolitan region, basically providing the leadership and, and support you know, to get those teams underway. Um, and we are very familiar with the fact that 
vigilance is very difficult. The resourcing for this is difficult. I mean, the other side of these things being very, very rare is that it's very hard to maintain vigilance and resources um, with respect to the next thing that comes along. So we talked in several ways. When we talk about different kinds of ways to get funding and sources, whether it's federal, state grants, uh, certain philanthropies that will do it. Um, we also talk about, you know, cross-leveraging teams that you would only want to have any there in place anyway. So for example, threat assessment, it's not just about active shooting threat assessment. It's also basic, almost like an all violence, you know, kind of an all threats approach. Because you also want to be looking at, and a lot of who you're going to be getting are going to be people who are posing uh, threats to themselves and others. Even if it's not, you know, shoot all my classmates, it may be I'm going to kill myself or I might kill, you know, one or two other people. And that's, you know, also, you know, critical to, to intervene with and stop. On the response side, um, you know, multi-agency disaster planning and event planning, you know, we know that a lot of that is obviously going on. And so this is another thing to prep for along with, you know, with flooding and massive storms and major, major social events of the year. Yeah, that's good but, to know. Yeah. I'm thinking in, in, I mean, we, when we talk about schools and colleges, um, you know, we can really be talking about public spaces and mm -hmm. public um, meeting areas. Is there a component within the toolkit that describes the situational awareness and investigations mm -hmm. prior to the, the physical incident? It seems like yeah. we've had a lot of precursor um, indicators that we don't find out till after post event. Right. And Sometimes it seems very obvious to us, but in reality, if you're a small jurisdiction and you're flooded with uh, information, red flags about people, um, how do we how do we uh, create some sort of parity among all areas so that small agencies have the same tools as larger agencies? Do you think there'll ever be yeah. a, a national yeah. network where we call in? Um, you know, some somebody's history and they can do a social media check or something like that? We kind of sort of have pieces of that, key pieces of that in place now. And that's through, I mentioned is that the Fusion Center network, you know, the Fusion Centers have very much volunteered, um, you know, through some of the people that we talk to, to be a key point of integration for, you know, on the sharing side of that. Um, another piece is, the nationwide suspicious activity reporting initiative uh, and the FBI's portion of it, eGuardian, are, you know, I think also key pieces. And then different states and different metro regions have kind of their own subsidiary sharing networks. And obviously, the what's, what state or local metro region one you have um, will depend on your area. Like, I mean, we talk about examples, for example, of New York's um, in, the, in the toolkit. So I think that there's kind of, of pieces of it that are there. Um, I think it's more a matter of, of helping to make sure that everybody's online and can share both the information as well as you know, getting help for threat assessment. Especially for small jurisdictions are starting to have things, you know, they can go to fusion centers, they can go to other regional partners and say, hey, we need help on this. Great. Hey, I'd like to ask some more about um, state posts, but I, I wanna get mm -hmm. back to that in a minute and first thank our sponsor. Coverage that goes beyond the call of duty. L3 Harris XL Series portables and mobiles are designed by and for frontliners who lay it on the line every day. LTE, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, GPS, 
and phone app-based devices expand your coverage and keep you connected in the most challenging situations. Schedule your demo today. Learn more at www.l3harris.com. And we're back and speaking with Dr. John S. Hollywood, senior researcher at the RAND Corporation, about their release, Mass Attacks Defense Chain and Toolkit. Dr. Hollywood, has there been talks about linking minimum standards for each state post to adopt certain guidelines to prepare, respond, mitigate, and rebuild? Are we doing that so that everybody's on the same page? Yes. So I'm most familiar with California, uh, California Post, uh, since we have two team members who are directly involved with California. Uh, And the most recent word that I have is that there's certainly discussion uh, on the need to update standards and training there to keep up with changes in the current state of affairs and uh, and changes to idealize you know what, what's best practices for operations and with incident command and communications being called out as areas that need that specifically need additional training uh, with communications need to talk about both the technology how to make sure everyone's radios can talk together and then communications practices making sure that everybody does not talk all at once um, which has been a major issue in, in certain past responses. Uh, with that being everyone tries to talk at once, doesn't matter how interoperable your radios are, no one's going to be able to, to hear anything. Um, there are a number of classes that are available. You know, we're going to reference some in the toolkit. Uh, I have a few ones that have been sent to me. We may be updating the toolkit with further. That's one of the great things about putting this out from our direction is that we learned about other cool things that are going on. Um, and that is that specific model standards and policies do appear to be a bit farther behind. Yeah. So, so training in general is expensive right. and it takes away from our daily mission, whether you're fire EMS or police, Absolutely. how can agencies train their personnel in a meaningful way? Are there opportunities to cross train? And, you know, I was on uh, California's uh, post commission on uh, SWAT certification and some agencies, uh, smaller agencies felt that, you know, four hours a month and knee pads and elbow pads qualified them to be SWAT operators. And clearly that's not the case. So how can we make sure, I mean, will we have somebody like Kalia or, or someone else, uh, do an assessment of, of agencies to make sure that they're doing it the right way. Um, I mean, that may well be said, I, I know, I think the first thing is going to be to work up the model standards and policies. Um, I think for the respect for, you know, the, provide hopefully tr- time and resources for training. You know, we talk about different kinds of opportunities for doing that, for, you know, both on the sort of the agency leadership side, making sure it's seen as a priority. Talk about doing cross leveraging from the assessment side, you know, the same kind of interviews or wellness checks with people are going to be, um, you know, they may be fracturing, maybe for other, all kinds of people who may potentially, you know, in danger of, of hurting themselves or others. Um, for you know, mass incident response, it's going to be all kind. A lot of that's going to carry over with all kinds of event response as well. So there, there are sort of synergies that that you can leverage there. Um, and with cross training, I mean, absolutely. I mean, ideally, you want to have cross training between schools. And my feeling on is kind of do the best you can do. If what you can do is Zoom is Zoom uh, tabletop exercises, then you know, do Zoom tabletop exercises. And we actually list to some examples of. Um, for both prevention and response cases. We, we came up with our own for prevention. Um, Police Executive Research Forum did a really 
detailed, you know, very quality, very challenging active shooter scenario with questions to do a tabletop exercise for. So we just linked to that one. Oh, that's great. Hey, I want to wrap up, but I want to uh, finish with technology. And I've been to conferences and trade shows to see, you know, the the blaring lights and, and sounds and sometimes even smoke um, in areas to confuse or disorient the shooter. Yeah. Uh, if, if we can find out where they are, we can lock down, you know, rooms or, or vestibules. Um, what are you seeing along the lines of technology? Is there something that uh, is proven to, to being effective? I mean, the biggest things that we found, and I'll say it was a combination, some of our own analysis, but very heavily relying as well, especially on alerts findings. So we want to, you know, call them out as well. I mean, a lot of the findings that we have are, you know, basically a lot of what alert found. A lot of it is really the basics, um, you know, f- for prevention, you just need to have those agency teams and structures in place. You need to have something reasonable for tracking assessments, uh, the decisions, the follow-ups, the next steps people are going to do. You know, what data you're going to come back and doing things. And the examples that we link to, you know, think one thing out of Virginia, uh, spreadsheets that are fillable and Outlook and then using Outlook invites to make sure everyone comes back in a certain point. Is it really sophisticated? No. Does it seem to work? Does everybody have it? Yes. Uh, on mitigation, Again, this idea of distance, movement, and barriers. So to the extent that you can, you know, have the, again, these working locks, you know, sort of layers of protection around locks, but then you're absolutely right. You need to make it so that people who are in a position to escape can escape. Um, and I know obviously then there are some details we to work out, especially in schools, for example, is it safer if you had a way that, you, you know, you know where the shooter is, is it safer for students to be barricaded in certain rooms rather than having them run through the halls? And I think that, you know, those will need to be, to be worked out in, in, in coming months. Uh, but the general idea of, you know, keeping shooters away with physical, you know, with physical locks and then having some things like, again, this idea of entry vestibules is useful. Um, you know, walk-up areas are useful. Doing a quick survey to make sure that, unfortunately, as, as it happened in Sandy Hook, the shooter couldn't bypass the locked door by shooting through a plate glass window, um, things like that. But in terms of, of the technology fixes, um, I think you know there are some things that could potentially be promising that could help, say, lock things faster, could help um, specify exactly where a shooter is faster, sure. Um, but I think the, the early focus needs to be on the basics. Yeah, for sure. The human element. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. John Hollywood, senior researcher at the RAND Corporation and creator of the Mass Attacks Defense Chain and Toolkit. We are going to put the link at the show notes so anybody can access it. It's really good to see. Uh, what are you researching these days? What's coming out next from RAND? Um, so for me personally, I think hopefully one of the next things we're going to be able to do is that we're going to be able to support DHS in further coming up with ways to improve the security for all kinds of what are referred to as soft target facilities. So looking forward to kind of taking the next steps with this research. We're very happy to answer any questions that your listeners might have. And how, how could they contact you? So there is a link to reach us on the Mass Attack Defense Toolkit under, under the About This Toolkit. You'll see a form to provide questions there. Great. Terrific. Hey, thanks again for spending time with us. And to our listeners, 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's broadcast and let us know what you think. We're getting a lot of good email from folks um, asking about things like national systems and uh, toolkits. So keep those emails coming in. Appreciate you for listening. Hey, stay safe and hope to talk to you again real soon. Take good care. <music>